I've changed my mind. You know, I think now's the time. Now's the time for us to go for, go for broke. We're experiencing the most disruptive time in the history of healthcare. With this podcast, I'm going to connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders to help you thrive in these unprecedented times. I'm your host, Randy Moore, CEO of the AANA. Joining us today is Ralph Cole, Senior Director of Federal Government Affairs. Thanks for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into the conversation? Yeah, thanks, Randy. Absolutely. So uh, my name is Ralph Cole, obviously. I'm a, the Senior Director of Federal Government Affairs at the AANA. Um, I've been in this role for uh, going on four years now. Prior to that, I was kind of the day-to-day lobbyist for uh, AANA. So I've been, uh, altogether, I've been with the association for eight years, been in a healthcare uh, policy role for a little over 15 years now, and um, just really excited to be here. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So before we get into it, there's there's a couple of things to call out. One is I, I've worked with many a lobbyists in my uh, leadership career at the state and national level. And I think you're one of those people that, one of the very few people that like, you really believe in this stuff. Like this is not, uh, this is not a gig. I mean, I, I mean I, I, the vibe that I get is that you really believe in the mission. You really believe in the profession. And, and when we win, you feel it. And when we have setbacks, you feel it. What, what, what's that about? It's, you know, I, I, I've, I feel like I've found a home at AANA. You know, it's it's. I was always interested in, in politics and policy, but you know, when I when I came to AANA and and started to to meet the members and and uh, talk to the folks that I was representing and and see the value that they bring to the healthcare system and the passion that they bring to the profession and to advocating on behalf of the profession, it's really infectious and. It's, you know, it, it's personal for me, you know, as you mentioned, you know, I, I, I love winning in general, but I, I really love winning for uh, CRNAs, SRNAs, and, and the folks I represent now, because, you know, you guys are just some of the uh, smartest, most talented, uh, engaged, ready to roll folks that, that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. So it's, it's just fun for me. Yeah, uh, it's a great profession. Sometimes we're a pain in the butt, but it, it is, uh, it's good when you can get behind something that means something. Meaning that, like, we're like no, no disrespect to, to lobbyists who lobby for Marlboro, uh, but we 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 get it. <laughs> we can we can look ourselves in, in, in the mirror and say, look, we're making people's lives better here. Uh, sometimes at a glacial space, but or pace, but we're on the right side of history. <laughs> yeah, yeah ab- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It's you know, I I, I uh, when when you say lobbyists, you know, there's a certain connotation, and and I always follow it up, you know, when I introduce myself and say what I do to folks that you know I'm a, I'm a good lobbyist. I work for a nursing organization. I talk a little bit about who CRNAs are, so it's uh it's always good it's always a good follow up to the word lobbyist. Yeah, <laughs> at least you're not a lawyer. So <laughs> okay, so okay, there's there's not much going on in D.C. So I, I don't know what we're going to talk about, but. Uh, <laughs> All right. Let's start out. Let's start at the hundred thousand foot level, and then let's then we can zoom in into what this means for the nurse anesthetist in, in, in the clinical level, right? And and we talk about obviously we've had a change in the presidential administration and Congress. I should say Senate has the Senate has flipped, and yep. that is a big big deal. Now the the Democrats have the slimmest of majorities, meaning the vice president is is the is the tiebreaker. But that that Georgia runoff was was really consequential. Can you tell us about what that means and, and maybe focus on on the context of what that means for healthcare delivery design in the United States? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, you know, it, it was a, 
a big shift in, in the power structure here in DC. You know, there's a, the Senate is split 50, 50 and with the, the, the power sharing agreement that they have in place, you know, the vice president is, is the tiebreaker, but it's only a 51 vote majority, which makes things very difficult uh, as far as passing legislation. And in a healthcare space, you know, that we're, we're seeing that that scarcity is ruling the day, you know, the, the scarcity of, of uh, monetary, monetary and human capital is is a real thing, and it's uh, only been highlighted by the global pandemic. So, you know, the the ability of this new administration to to push through meaningful healthcare related legislation is going to be very difficult. Obviously, uh, President Biden was the vice president for uh, President Obama when Obamacare was passed, and President Biden ran on improving the Affordable Care Act making improvements to the Affordable Care Act. And, and if anyone's been paying attention, uh, it's been the stated goal of Republicans to uh, repeal and replace Obamacare. So uh, the, the chances of legis- meaningful legislation getting through both the House and Senate right now, slim, slim. So it, it's going to you know, shift a lot of our efforts to the regulatory side of things, working with the, uh, the, the Biden administration to move things through the Department of Health and Human Services. You know, there's there's regulatory avenues to improve the Affordable Care Act uh, that are going to help shape kind of what we're looking to accomplish uh, in the next year or so, Um, you know, related to to supervision, related to provider non-discrimination is a big issue for us. It was a provision originally in the Affordable Care Act, so it it ties in to the the ability to, to shape health policy through the regulatory, through a regulatory vehicle as opposed to a legislative vehicle. Yeah, we'll get into that in a second. I, I, let's let's talk about healthcare infrastructure because what I'm hearing from you is that you know a big play like overhauling the infrastructure of of healthcare in like a Medicare for all kind of model is off the table, and and likely I, I mean it would it be safe to say this is off the table in our lifetime or is 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 that a little obnoxious, a little aggressive when you look at you know it's certainly through the primary seasons on the Democratic side you know. Biden was was because he was so involved in the Obamacare work and, and helped pass it. I mean, he was very engaged in selling it to Congress. He's been that, well, let's let's enhance it, let's fix it kind of mindset. Whereas Warren and Sanders were, well, no, we want a single payer solution. What what's your what's your prediction on, on what that means? When I'm hearing in the short term, it ain't happening. What are the long-term prospects of something like that, a major infrastructure shift? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think you you probably captured it correctly. Not in our lifetimes, unless there's a, a big shift in things. It's definitely not getting done in the short term. You know, throughout the campaigns, uh, you hear a lot about you know Medicare for all and those those seismic shifts in in, in the structure of our healthcare delivery system. That's not going to happen. You know, we've had I've had private conversations with you know folks at the highest levels of, of healthcare policy decision making in, in both the House and Senate. And even from some of the most liberal members of uh, the Democratic Party saying that there's just now is not the time. It's not the time that the fiscal environment is not conducive to it. It's just too big a leap to take on all at once. So, you know, we might see some incremental changes in, in how healthcare is delivered, but not that seismic shift, at least not not in the, not in the near term. That's for sure. Yeah. So is that, is that what that be the same for a public option where we're so, in, you know, extending Medicare coverage outside of of what we see now. Do you see that off the table too? I, I think that's that's off the table in the, in the immediate future, but that's something that, that that could be that incremental step that they look to take instead of taking that big big leap to a, a single payer system is that Medicare for all option, something that kind of, that bridges the gap. You know, that's that's something that's more palatable to more, a broader swath of the Democratic Party. So the next couple of elections are really going to be mm-hmm. consequential and, and on the, the, the future of, of kind of the structure of our healthcare delivery system. 
Yeah. Well, let's okay. Let's double click because uh, what I heard was uh, if we're talking about this in the context of of making CRNAs lives better, <laughs> removing barriers, we're talking a lot about regulation. I know there, there's some potential legislation that might be in play, and we can talk about that too. But we're talking about moving our legit or our our advocacy agenda primarily, not exclusively, but primarily through re through regulation, right? Yep. Tell me a little bit about that. What 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 would be the plays there? Yeah. So absolutely, you know. Right now, we're, we're really well positioned given the environment, you know, the scarcity of resources. It's forced uh, policymakers to take a really long look at regulatory policies that are impacting access, cost, and quality. So we're, you know, we're, we're right in that nexus. And in particular, you know, during the health, public health emergency, we were able to secure a, a temporary removal, temporary waiver of physician supervision in the Medicare Part A conditions of participation for hospitals, ambulatory, surgical centers. You know, and, and this is, you know, we can attack this in a way that could make it permanent. I think that the, the, the opportunity is there and it's very real to make this temporary waiver a permanent waiver of Medicare physician supervision requirements. And that's, that's one avenue that, that we're currently working on and, and one that, you know, we're, we're developing congressional champions who have connections to the agencies. And then the other is, is provider non-discrimination. And this was a big victory that, that we really helped secure. AANA was the driving force behind this. We were able to secure a provision in, the, uh, in a year-end package uh, in the surprise billing legislation that uh, required uh, the administration to put out regulations to uh, regulate provider non-discrimination. And what that does, it essentially prohibits insurers from discriminating against a provider solely based on their licensure. So if you're licensed to do X, Y, and Z procedures in Kentucky, you know, you are anyone who's offering a private insurance plan in Kentucky would be required to, you would be required to be reimbursed for X, Y, and Z procedures. You know, it would be a huge step forward for not just CRNAs, but all advanced practice providers. Uh, it, was, it was originally included in the Affordable Care Act. It was never regulated, so it never really had any teeth. But we were able to secure this requirement that regulation be promulgated, which we're going to help shape and we're going to help make sure is meaningful for every CRNA across the country. Yeah, this is where, you know, I, I, get, I talk to CRNAs frequently who are kind of like, I'm not political. I'm, you know, and, and you know, and I'm, and I'm not interested in politics and, and I get it. I mean, you look at what's going on in our environment. It is kind of polarizing. But this is one of those areas where if, if this moves in the direction we want it to go, uh, moves in the direction that we think it should go, this is going to have a huge impact on the profession, right? We're talking about securing through federal regulation, provider non-discrimination in a way that's never existed in this country. And, and you, you, know, you, you did a good job of explaining what that means, but that is huge, right? I mean, and, and, and to think that, you know, the, think of the whack-a-mole that we do here within this organization. We're running around uh, with a Medicare administrative contractors and other payers and saying, you need to pay these people, you need to pay these people and, and how much effort and, and, and how much trouble that creates for our members. There's a possibility with a, with the swipe of a pen, proverbially pen, that that could go away. Am, am I overselling this? Am I too optimistic? No, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm always optimistic and, and I'm always fighting for, you know, that, that home run. And this could, this could be that if, if we're able to, Secure the the rulemaking that we're we're pushing for. It it would be a game changer for for you know for every CRNA because there wouldn't be a, a there wouldn't be an insurance plan being offered in America that would be able to deny CRNAs reimbursement for their stated scope of practice. And that's mm -hmm. just you know from from my perspective is is the holy grail you know for 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 
changing the game for CRNAs and, and you know, really rewriting the books on, on, a, on, on a legislative su- regulatory success. I think it would be huge. And, you know, you talked about earlier, smiling, just thinking about it right now, because, you know, I'm really we were able to push this through. It was it was our idea. You know, over a year ago, you and I talked about the strategy that, that we Strategic. wanted to take. Yeah. And, and we were able to, to, to get it done despite the opposition of organized medicine and the insurance plans. So we, you know, AANA took on organized medicine and the insurers and came out with a victory. And that's just, that's just exciting. Yeah. And that, that is a testament to, I think, thinking outside of the box. Yeah. And, you know, we, you know, we talk about what's, what's happening at the 100,000 foot level. And, and sometimes it could be like, well, how, where do we fit in the puzzle? And if you look at the overall... Look, I mean, let's be real. If you look at the overall cost structure of healthcare and the role that anesthesiology plays in it, it's pretty small. But that doesn't mean that we can't, through what I think is some pretty strategic, smart moves, position ourselves to capitalize on where things are going. And that's, and that's what we did there, right? We saw a piece of legislation that was moving. It was moving fast. You did a, over a year's worth of groundwork to get us in there. So when it started moving at the 11th hour, we're there. And, and here we are now, potentially securing some really favorable rulemaking and, and that's advocacy <laughs> and, 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 and that, that translates into, into real and meaningful impact for our members right? and non-members too, but yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a big deal. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a BFD for sure. So, you know, you think about this in the context of, let's say, okay, healthcare is shifting fast. Uh, and we, you know, have a conversation with Anna Poliak, who's, who's running the lobby shop for our state government affairs team, and now we're talking you know, with you, and, and there's a lot going on at the state and national level. And obviously, our, our colleagues on the physician side aren't exactly 100% supportive of where things are going. What are you seeing in terms of opposition and how they're positioning themselves uh, relative to what is really se- seismic shifts in healthcare? You, you know, it's, it's uh, organized medicine is, is always our biggest challenge. And, you know, you, you see that the, they're I feel like they, they're, they're sensing they're being backed into a corner and, and they're getting beat, you know, at, at every turn by us. And, you know, I think that they are running out of tools in their toolbox to, to stop the momentum. You know, I think they fall back on scare tactics. They don't have meaningful studies. They don't have, you know, the evidence and economics is not on their side. And that is what we're trying to drive this, you know, we're trying to drive all of our advocacy efforts with evidence and economics. And they're relying on because I say so. And, you know, I have a, a six and an eight-year-old, and, and because I say so, it doesn't work with my six and an eight-year-old. It, it really has no place in meaningful healthcare policy uh, decisions. And that's what I think, you know, all of our efforts consistently being, you know, we've, since you've taken over in, in the past several years, we've taken a lot more aggressive stance on, on our advocacy efforts and our PR advocacy efforts. And, and I think it's paying off because the more you juxtapose the evidence and economics, because I say so, you know, the more you're going to win people over because they're tired of hearing because I say so. You know, it's it's losing its luster as an argument. And I think as, as long as we keep our, our foot on the gas, you know, they're, they're running out of things to, to stop us. That's that's just how how I look at it right now. Yeah. Tell me about, you know, things in the last year has been really difficult for all of us. Right. And COVID has been just a hugely traumatic event in, in, in so many different ways. And, and and being in Washington, D.C. and seeing some of the things that have happened in Washington, D.C. recently, I think has been traumatic for sure. But, you know, from your perspective, you look at COVID-19 and its impact, let's say, on 
the way legislation and regulation has been moving in the last year. What's what have you seen? What what, what surprises you about that? What, what do you and, and where do you think that's going to take us in the future? You know, I I I, I think a global pandemic. You you don't know what to expect at all. So yeah. so you're not really surprised by anything. It's just everything is is just new. Um, mm. But from from my perspective, you know, I feel like the public health emergency has highlighted the role and value of of CRNAs and and other advanced practice providers in a way that that wouldn't have happened as quickly. You know, we we saw the removal of a, the temporary suspension of a lot of waivers that you know the the, the opposition has constantly consistently said are going to lead to poor outcomes, lead to death, lead to destruction. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the worst case scenario. And what the pandemic and the has led to is is the fact that their arguments are not based in fact, and we're not seeing the the adverse outcomes from from freeing up advanced practice providers to do their jobs. And that's been you know, a, a huge change, which I think has been accelerated by the, the global pandemic and, and the, the value of, of nursing, the value of advanced practice nurses, the value of CRNAs has never been more apparent and, you know, has never had a, had this much exposure about about just how valuable uh, APRNs and CRNAs are to the overall delivery of healthcare in America. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the VA. Now, the VA is, is the largest healthcare organization, if that's the right term, in the country, right? And so, you know, what happens in the VA has some pretty significant consequences. A, because uh, they're taking care of veterans who, who have given so much, right? And B, you know, when the largest healthcare provider or healthcare organization in the country makes a move of, in one way or another, it, it has a ripple effect. And, and what are you seeing that's occurring recently in the VA that, particularly as it relates to nurse anesthetists, that piques your, your your interest. Yeah, I, I think the recent rulemaking that was pushing the, the delivery system in the VA to streamline their their regulatory process, because you know right now I think that one VA is one VA is one VA, and there's no kind of uniform standard. You know, every VA is doing it differently, and and from the challenges that they've been facing, you know, it's become apparent that that's not the best practice. And the rulemaking uh, was trying to more closely align with policy in the DoD space. Uh, the Department of Defense, and you know, to to streamline uh, licensure and what that means across state lines across the entire VA system. So they're looking to come up with more uniform standards for best practices, and that includes uh, full practice and scope of practice. And we're we're working currently to to you know make sure that as they move forward internally, that they are getting know that they know that they have support from Congress and, and the, the committees and the VSOs to, to move in the direction of full practice. And that's that's going to be a huge step forward for our, our veterans' access to care and, and the cost of delivery in, in the VA system, which I think is is huge. And, you know, yeah. we're, we're going to do everything we can to make sure they keep heading in that direction. And this is where I think sometimes it gets lost in, in, in the debate. You know, you know, this is not a turf war. <laughs> This is, if, if, look, these are veterans and, and, and inefficiency in a VA, whether it's in a small one in Iowa or a big one somewhere else, has real impact on the access to care for veterans. I, I remember, you know, I was started this job three and a half years ago. I was probably, you know, still trying to figure out where my office was. And, and we, you know, the you know, news come out of the VA in Colorado where they were canceling cases because they didn't have enough anesthesia providers, allegedly, right? And, and so that became a big news event. It got a lot of attention. And I think what is lost in the mix is that these are human beings who are not getting their surgery, are uh, not getting their diagnostic, you know, exam, a colonoscopy or something like that, 
because of politics, right? right? And, and that's what this is, is politics. Meaning that, hey, we, we're gonna have this inefficient model where one anesthesiologist is watching another anesthesia provider doing anesthesia. Uh, and, and we're gonna say that's okay because we don't wanna change the practice model in a way that increases access because, oh, we might be giving something up. And that, you know, I, I, I get off my soapbox here in a second, but I mean, when are we as a country going to say, look, <laughs> You know, these are people who are being harmed by these models, and nurse anesthetists uh, are, are fully capable and qualified to practice in, in, in a more independent posture, just like I was when I was in Afghanistan, uh, and I didn't have anybody signing up to supervise me over there. So why are we talking, because these are the exact same people, in many cases, who now come home, who need care, and ha are having to wait weeks or months to have this care because of inefficient staffing models. I don't know if there's, I don't think that was a question. <laughs> well, uh, well, I, I, if you're jumping off your soapbox, I, I'll jump right on it because, uh -huh. you know, that, that Denver situation, I think, highlights just the, the, the real world impact that these anesthesia models can have. So in that scenario, there were, there were something like seven anesthesiologists and, and 11 or 12 CRNAs, and they were unable to meet the needs of their veteran population in their area, postponing and canceling cases for, uh, you know, nearly 100 cases in a three-month span. Mm -hmm. And they were more than capable of meeting that demand because they were utilizing one-to-one -one or two-to-one supervision models. And instead of loosening the requirements for, for supervision, you know, the facility decided that they needed to hire more anesthesiologists to have more supervision and more capacity. And for me, this is where it really kind of makes me sick to my stomach because that's four anesthesiologists they're hiring at $400,000 a year. That's $1.6 million annually. And I, I did a little bit of digging on what, you know, how much does a social worker make per year? How much does a suicide prevention hotline operator make per year? Where could that $1.6 million have been utilized to really meet the needs of our veteran population? Because it's not for more one anesthesia provider looking over the shoulder of another. That's absurd. And you extrapolate that across the country, that $1.6 million to the largest healthcare delivery system in the United States possibly the world. And you can imagine how many millions of dollars are being wasted on anesthesia delivery models that have no value at all. There is no value to one-to-one, two-to-one, three-to-one, four-to-one. You know, it's just not the way to deliver healthcare in, and ensure access in, in the most cost-effective way to provide it. When, when you have a scarcity of money to take care of our veterans, stop wasting it on anesthesia models that don't make any sense. So that's why we're working on that. <laughs> right. And so uh, thanks for that, Ralph. So, I, you know, what do you say to the folks who are, you know, they see what's happening, you know, in, in the, the body politic of this country where there's a lot of political division, uh, a lot of polarization, and, and they have a pretty pes pessimistic view. I'm looking because you're the, you're the glass half full guy in, in, in the crew, uh, you know, in, in, on the other way, right? And, and what, what do you tell folks who are like, this is, this is how are we going to, make this country better with what we have now? What, what, what would you say to those folks? You know, I, I, I always look at it and, and, you know, that there is always a place where you can meet in the middle, even in these polarizing times. And, you know, for, for, for us, you know, we have a, a good role to play in, in changing things for the better. And 
we always work across the aisle. Everything we do is in a, in a uh, bipartisan fashion, and we have supporters on both sides. And I feel like healthcare and the, the veterans issues are places, you know, when, especially during a pandemic and, and when, when you can see ways to come together as a Republican, as a Democrat on our issues, you know, it's, it's, it's getting two people to work together that may not have had a relationship. And, and that's, you know, helping us build bridges, helping, we can help build bridges and we're, we're doing, we're doing good work. You know, that's why I, I, I love my job and I love what I do is because I do believe that, that we have solutions that are meaningful. The future of healthcare delivery, which is one of the biggest challenges that, that any government, any society faces is providing, you know, cost-effective, meaningful healthcare. And, and uh, the more we can bring people together in the middle on sensible solutions, I think the better we're going to be. And that's, you know, I, I hope, I hope we, we, I hope the pendulum swings back to the middle because I think that's where the, the best policy gets done is when both sides meet in the middle. Yeah, that's great. So I, I'm going to steal a question from Dave Stahofiak's uh, coaching for leaders. And, and uh, the question is this, uh, what's one thing that you've changed your mind on in the last year? One thing I've changed my mind on. That's a great question. On a I'll go personal first. On a, on a personal level, I always uh, thought that I would make a really great teacher. And, uh, <laughs> and what the pandemic has taught me is that I am a mediocre teacher at best. And I'm, I'm just happy my kids can recognize letters at this point. Uh, but, or pants on, yeah. <laughs> but, and professionally, you know, professionally, I think what I've changed my mind on is our ability to get that big win. You know, there were times where even though I'm a glass half full guy that, that I, you know, looked at organized medicine and, and as kind of a, you know, we can chip away, we can get these small wins. We can, we can chip mm-hmm. away and we can move the ball, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust and eventually we'll, we'll build up to that big win. And I've changed my mind. You know, I think now's the time. Now's the time for us to go for, go for broke. I think we have the momentum. We just secured one major victory uh, despite opposition from organized medicine. And I, I don't think there's any stopping us. You know, I, I really believe that. I, I really believe that. You know, I think that, that uh, we are uh, well positioned to make some really meaningful and impactful changes uh, that, that benefit CRNAs, every CRNA across the board. Well, thanks for that. And thanks for joining us on Moving the Needle, a podcast for nurse anesthesiology. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Randy. Thanks so much, Ralph. And thank you to those who are listening to this podcast, where we connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders to help you thrive in these unprecedented times.